these evenings when I come and it's my turn to give a talk in the hall. Often when I sit here, I notice this intention to speak. It rises, passes, and another one arises and passes. And so far, one of them has been strong enough to get me to actually open my mouth and begin. But I can tell one of these nights, I'm just going to keep watching those intentions. <laughs> and we're going to have a uh, kind of John Cage <laughs> Dhamma talk. It'll be 45 minutes of ambient sound. And then the bell will ring. And I don't know how my colleagues will feel about that. It ha- I can just feel it coming. I'm sure one of these nights, I can just tell it's going to happen. But not tonight. Mm. Mm. Often in my role, especially as a teacher, when I speak to people who are uh, practicing and on retreat like this, and uh, or, or I get in different situations, I get the uh, people express the feeling that uh, the word or uh, idea of enlightenment or nibbana, the realization of nibbana, doesn't it doesn't have any real meaning somehow? That there's a sense that um, that it, it doesn't come any place, doesn't land somewhere useful in the mind and the heart. Often expressing that it, it gets in the way, or it feels that it leads to uh, confusion, or even sometimes kind of discouragement to even. Um, and look at this this idea, this concept at all. And I think for many of us, if we relate to the idea of, of Nibbana, this realization, enlightenment, if we entertain it or, or relate to it in any way at all, we often will see it as something very far away from us, perhaps, high and remote and, and outside the realm of anything that we hold as a real possibility. And we may have some vague sense of uh, some kind of undefined, sort of unknowable goal of the practice that we're supposed to be able to get to if we work hard enough, bring enough effort and energy to the practice, some kind of reward that we might get. And maybe some of the problem results in the limitations of language, you know, the word nibbana in some very essential level is impossible to define, I think. You know, we can try to point at it. Maybe the best we can do is try to point at what this might mean, either by saying what it isn't. Often things are spoken about in terms of what, not this, not this. Or maybe alluding to certain qualities, Characteristics, but often this is done in, in sort of vague and rather poetic ways. You know, we can get a sense for the difficulty if we think about what it's like. You notice this when you meet with teachers, probably, what it's like to try to describe your experience in meditation. Or if we think about how we might describe that to someone who's never meditated. Really difficult. Uh, we to touch the subtlety and nuance of our inner experience 
and put that into language is very, very difficult to do. It's like if we try to describe the experience, what it's like to eat a mango to someone who's never had anything to do with the mango. You know, we can go on and on about the color and the texture and the juiciness and the flavor and the smell and the taste and, you know, how delicious they are, how much we like them, what it's our favorite fruit, maybe. But until somebody actually eats one, they will have no idea, really, what what that's like, what that experience is like. And when we read descriptions or think about uh, the Buddha's realization, we run into all kinds of words that aren't easily pinned down by the conceptual mind. Just as space is not produced, does not age, does not suffer death, does not pass out of existence, does not come into existence, cannot be forcibly handled, cannot be carried away by thieves, rests on nothing, is the pathway of birds, presents no obstacles, is endless. So also Nibbana is not produced, does not age, does not suffer death, does not pass out of existence, does not come into existence, cannot be forcibly handled, nor carried away by thieves, rests on nothing, is the pathway of the noble, presents no obstacles, and is endless. There is an island, an island which you cannot go beyond. It is a place of no thingness, a place of non-possession and of non-attachment. It is the total end of death and decay, and this is why I call it Nibbana, in the words of the Buddha. And it sounds so beautiful, an island you cannot go beyond. And it may touch us in some way in the heart. This place of non-attachment, non-possession, it does not age, neither coming into existence nor passing out of existence. And there's some beauty in the language, some sense of something. But also language like this, it tends to reinforce this way of holding enlightenment, nibbana, as as a place or experience. It's far away, somewhere over the rainbow, like some kind of heavenly realm or something. This beautiful island. And so if we think of it at all, we may relate to this idea, this concept, this feeling of nibbana in this vague way. It's somewhere out there. And we, we know we don't have it now. But might somebody be able to get it, even though we're not at all sure what it might be? There's another way that, that the realization, the Buddha's enlightenment is described. It's very simple in the text. The extinction of greed, extinction, extinction of hate, extinction of delusion, this is called Nibbana. The uprooting of these uh, root causes of suffering in the mind and heart. And so, in other words, if these energies, if these forces 
no longer hold sway over the mind and heart, no longer arise in the mind stream, aren't running the show, aren't driving the bus of our mind and heart, then one experiences the deepest possible happiness, the peace and freedom that the Buddha was pointing to in his t- all of his teachings. This is all he ever was interested in, in pointing at this realization. And do we hold this in any way as a possibility? Do we relate to this in any way? What would it be like if these energies were no longer arising in the mind stream? didn't arise, or if they did arise, had absolutely no power, were powerless, did not move the mind in any way, move the heart. We can make what I think is maybe a mistake, really a mistake, I think, of thinking, holding freedom of this in this way as, as very far away beyond the scope of our imagination or beyond anything we feel like we have experienced in any way. But actually, if we look at our experience, we may get a sense, feel that we, that we can see that there are times when we get at least a taste of what the Buddha was pointing at in this description, the extinction of these forces, these root causes of suffering. There are times when we may get a taste of this. Times when we do experience moments, and they may be brief, very fleeting, when these energies actually are not arising. And there's just a sense of presence, pure presence, the unfolding of experience and the mind knowing it. And it's free of, the mind is not moved by it. It's free of any kind of uh, reactivity. We get a taste of this peace. And the great Thai forest master Ajahn Buddha Dasa called this momentary nibbana. You know, often I think maybe we have this idea that the Buddha's enlightenment, you know, we're going to float away or dissolve into a mist and slowly flow out through the ceiling there into the night, some mist of white or rainbow light. But you know, the Buddha didn't dissolve and float away. He still had to live his life. He had to go on alms round for a meal every day. He had to wake up with a stiff back and deal with all kinds of um, difficult people and situations he probably would have rather avoided if he could. He had to live his life. We have our lives to live and, and all of life's changes will come to us. And all the joys and sorrows that are part of a life in this realm, on this plane. Life goes on with its ups and downs. And the Buddha's liberation does not mean escaping from life. We get life with its changes. But suffering in relation to that, that's a whole other Other question. It's in that, in the way we relate to the changes, where we can have the possibility to find something we might call freedom. I think at times uh, over the 
these days together, I may have mentioned that I, I have often spent part of the winter times traveling um, in Burma, in that part of Asia where I have lived at times. And uh, it's very dear to my heart, that country and the practice, um, the people there, the practices there. And I've helped with a retreat in Upper Burma in the Sagaing Hills for a long time now, since um, more than 15 years. I haven't gotten to go. I didn't get to go this year. I work with a couple of small aid projects there. We're uh, trying to bring some some help to some of the uh, very poor people, especially nuns in, uh, in Burma. Whenever I think of that country, when images come into my mind, almost always uh, the the nuns, the Buddhist nuns, there are part of well, they're part of the landscape in my mind, in my heart. When I think of that country, somehow that's always part of how I picture it. And and these uh, these Buddhist nuns and in Burma and Thailand, especially Burma, because I've spent more time there. They've, they've been a huge inspiration to me over the years. Their, their grace and dignity and devotion and this beautiful, humble uh, kind of faith that is so strong in, in many of them. There were, um, some years ago now, in 2007, there was a huge a storm, a bad cyclone that hit uh, much of that part of Southeast Asia. It was very bad in um, Bangladesh, always gets hammered, and really bad in Burma. Wiped out a lot of rice fields, and people lost their homes. A lot of people lost their lives in this terrible hurricane. And I was visiting shortly after that storm had hit, some months later, but still the the devastation, you know, I saw 75%, 80% of the big old trees in Rangoon were knocked down. That's a lot of shade gone. And we visited, there were a lot of nuns, small nunneries near this meditation center where I've spent quite a bit of time. I met two, uh, these two sisters there, and they had been uh, doing a lot of study and service, and they had finally found this one, this little place where they were going to go and really dive into practice. And it had been a long time. I think maybe it had been 20 years in robes or more, and then they had this chance finally. And It was just a little bamboo hut um, that they had uh, found. It got blown down by the storm, but they had, had come up with new housing there. And just as they were settling in, the Someone, um, I think it was the the, uh, monk who had been their preceptor, showed up with these little orphan girls from after the storm and said, I need to ask you to take them in. And they were all, when we, they were all in, they wear these beautiful pink robes and uh, they were these little nunlets, we call them, very tiny little, very sweet, (laughs) some of them very young. And these nuns, they took them in, um, you know, teaching them, caring for them, educating them. 
I have many, many, many stories. In the, within the collection of all of the discourses and uh, teachings that make up the Pali Canon, which is quite large, there's a collection, a very small collection called the Terigata. Some of you may have heard of it. The word Teri is the same root as the word Terra as in Theravada. This is the Theravada tradition. And uh, Terra means elder, Vada means way, way of the elders. Teri is female, so it's um, a female elder. And Gatta means a stanza or verse or song or poem. Teri Gatta is a verse or poem of a female elder. And this collection consists of, I think, 73 different uh, poems, verses that um, were um, spoken by these very earliest nuns, the nuns who uh, were disciples of the Buddha at that time. uh, They recount their, often their struggles um, as they were practicing um, and a lot of them are, take the form of kind of an enlightenment poem, speak of their realization in, uh, in their practice along the path. And I love these poems. They're very, they're very simple and straightforward and have a real honesty. They feel like they come right from the heart. And um, when we hear them, and some of them, they, they really show how their struggles were so, what they had to deal with, what they, uh, the practices, everything that they did, so much... Um, reflects our own, what we go through in our practice. And I was thinking when I was working on my notes for the talk um, about a reflection that Spring offered this morning that I found uh, really moving, um, pointing to the fact that all beings, all those who have walked this path, who have realized uh, what the Buddha taught, gone deep in the practice, they have struggled with the same stuff. They had bodies and minds, minds that went all over the place and didn't behave, that had no pride, as uh, Spring said, you know, it just went everywhere. And, and these poems point to some of this. And in, in some of them, there's this beautiful uh, description of uh, the moment of awakening for some of these nuns. So tonight I'd like to share some of the poems. And there are stories that accompanied some of these poems, stories of the lives of some of these women. Sometimes they're quite detailed. And there are a number of translations. I've used um, translations from a book called The First Buddhist Women by Susan Murcott, which I I like her translations very much. And she includes uh, some of the stories. Um, And like all of the teachings, these were orally preserved. They were memorized and spoken, told, these stories told over the, over the years, over the centuries, and then eventually written down. And sometimes both the stories and the poems can seem kind of formulaic. They follow a certain pattern. They almost um, have a quality of being teaching fables. But most of them are certainly based on at least a kernel, a core of, of uh, truth about uh, what their lives were like, some historical truth fact to them. And the stories give a glimpse into that time, however limited they are, and uh, the lives, the personalities of these uh, people. There's a way that it becomes real and more human. You know, these were real people, and they had their 
trials and tribulations and uh, joys and sorrows and struggles. And, and I think hearing this connects us to this lineage that we're part of. We're practicing the same practices that they did, hearing the same teachings. They can inspire us, I think. At least I find they inspire me. So I'm hoping that uh, by offering this, it will be an inspiration to you all. We follow in their footsteps. So the first story I'll tell a bit of and read a poem is by a nun named uh, Mahapajapati Gotami, who was the Buddha's uh, foster mother, his aunt and his foster mother. Now this story begins at the time of his birth. She was the founder of the order of the nuns, the Bhikkhuni Sangha. And uh, it's, uh, the story says that the Buddha's birth mother, Maya, died seven days after he was born. And so he was raised by his aunt, his aunt Pajapati, uh, who raised him as her, first ch- her own first child. And she had uh, two children of her own after that. And when um, the prince Siddhartha left, uh, left home on his, his spiritual uh, quest, his great renunciation and uh, journey, he was 29 and he didn't return home during the whole um, five and a half, six years of his uh, practice, ascetic practice, and uh, the, his practice leading up to his awakening. But it's said that his father asked him to come back, sent word, and he returned sometime in the year following his enlightenment. And uh, he, his mother, his foster mother, uh, was called her uh, Maha Pajapati. At that time, she would have been probably 50 or in her early 60s, in her 50s. Uh, Maha, she had a, it was an honorific title that she had uh, by because of her age and uh, level of respect that uh, she was held in by uh, <clears throat> people there. So her name was, she was known as Maha Pajapati. And uh, it's said that during that first visit, the Buddha gave, gave some teachings and she uh, realized the first stage of awakening stream entry by, after hearing a discourse of his. And then when he returned five years after that, she, wanted, she uh, was determined to ask permission f- to become a nun. And um, there were a large group of women who followed her, who were interested and followed her. She went to uh, find the Buddha, followed him when he left. And after some persistent effort and an intervention by the kindly Ananda on their behalf, uh, they succeeded in uh, convincing the Buddha to uh, establish the nun's order, which was probably a very radical thing to do at that time in India. Um, I'll just read a little bit here. Um, Ananda went to the Buddha and asked permission on behalf of the nuns. And Initially, uh, his request was declined. And so um, he decided, well, I, I have to try a different approach than what I've I've tried. So he said, went to the Buddha and said, are women able, Lord, when they have entered into homelessness? That's the way of describing the the life of the nuns and monks, homelessness. Are they able to realize the fruits of stream entry, of once returning, non-returning, and arahantship, which is the traditional four stages of enlightenment? And the Buddha replied, yes, Ananda, they are able. 
And Ananda said, if women are able to realize perfection, and since, since Pajapati was of great service to you, she was your aunt, your nurse, your foster mother, and when your mother died, she even suckled you at her own breast, it would be good, Lord, if women could be allowed to enter into homelessness. And the Buddha gave his consent and called Pajapati and said, Ehi bikuni, come, bikuni. And he told her that the women who had come along should be ordained and become nuns if they wished to do that. And the story goes that after, uh, after this, she was given uh, further meditation instructions and uh, eventually became fully enlightened. And uh, she's said to have lived to be 120 and to have taught for a long time. And so I'd like to read her poem. It speaks in, it praises the Buddha. It speaks to, um, she speaks about wandering in samsara, in the endlessness of samsara, um, and recounts a bit of her own realization and um, ending the cycle of birth, death and rebirth. This is Mahapajapati's enlightenment poem. Homage to you, Buddha, best of all creatures, who set me and many others free from pain. All pain is understood, the cause, the craving is dried up, the noble eightfold way unfolds. I have reached the state where everything stops. I have been mother, son, father, brother, grandmother, knowing nothing of the truth I journeyed on. But I have seen the Blessed One. This is my last body, and I will not go forth from birth to birth again. Look at all the disciples together, their energy, their sincere effort. This is homage to the Buddhas. Maya gave birth to Gotama for the sake of us all. She has driven back the pain of the sick and the dying. I look out at you, the disciples, their energy, their sincere effort. This is homage to the Buddha. There are uh, a number of poems in this collection that um, are either by uh, Pajapati's disciples or nuns who are connected with her. I'd like to read uh, one that's quite famous, some of you have probably heard it, by a a nun named Vadesi, who, um, she was one of the original group of women who accompanied uh, Pajapati and became a nun at that time. She had been, I think, an attendant to her when she was living in the palace uh, at the Buddhas, where the Buddha grew up. This is... uh, Venerable Vadesi's poem. It was 25 years since I left home and I hadn't had a moment's peace. Uneasy at heart, steeped in longing for pleasure, I held out my arms and cried out as I entered the monastery. I went up to a nun I thought I could trust. She taught me the Dhamma, the elements of body and mind, the nature of perception, earth, 
water, fire, and wind. I heard her words and sat down beside her. Now I have entered the six realms of sacred knowledge. I know I have lived before, and the eye of heaven is pure. I know the minds of others. I have great powers and have annihilated all the obsessions of the mind. The Buddha's teaching has been done. 25 years since I left home, hadn't had a moment's peace. So do not despair. (laughs) If we keep putting in those drops, you never know. Could be tomorrow. So I'll, I'll tell another story now before I read the next poem. This is a nun named Patachara. And she was um, quite a powerful figure in the nun's community. Uh, eventually she became very, uh, very charismatic, skilled teacher with a lot of disciples. Her story, for some reason this story, I think because it's so uh, striking and kind of tragic, so brace yourselves. Um, is very detailed. There's a lot of details about her life story. There are a lot of parallels to uh, the story of a a more modern practitioner, uh, Deepama. Some of you may know a bit of Deepama's story. She had a lot of tragedy in her life before she came to practice. So Patachara was born into uh, the family of a banker in the town of Savati. And uh, when she was grown up, she... uh, came of a certain age, there was a marriage arranged to a, a young man from the town who was of a similar kind of social rank as was done at that time. But she was pretty strong-willed even as quite young and she had other ideas and ran off with a, a servant of the family who uh, she had sort of taken as a lover, I guess. And, and they ran away together and, and got married and, um, and eventually, she became pregnant and decided she wanted to go to her parents' home uh, for uh, giving birth. And uh, she decided she wanted to go, but her husband was not so keen on the idea. He probably didn't think he'd get a warm welcome since uh, they probably weren't too happy with uh, her choice of husband. So uh, she went off on her own, but he followed along and uh, caught up with her partway along the road to back to Savati. And, um, apparently she went into labor on, at this time on the journey, but she was able to give birth there uh, as they were traveling, and then they, they came home. And uh, sometime later, she uh, was pregnant with a second child, and again she started out to go to her birthplace, to her parents' home, with her, the young toddler, the young child, uh, along. And again her husband followed her, caught up with her, and she went into labor again. But this time there was a huge storm, a really bad storm came. And uh, so her husband decided he would build some kind of shelter because she started going into labor. And so he was cutting bamboo sticks and grass to build a a simple shelter. And uh, apparently there was a poisonous snake in the grass and he was bitten and died. And poor Patachara, she didn't know what had happened, uh, was in labor and, and gave birth. Um, late in the day, and then spent the night um, sheltering her her young, her baby, the brand new baby, and the young child with her body from this storm. 
And then uh, in, the mo- in the morning, she found her husband's body, and she was feeling pretty bad, grief-stricken. She, she didn't know what to do. She stayed there for another night, recovering her strength, and then decided she, she, didn't, she would go to her parents' home anyway. So it said she came to the banks of uh, a river there, the Achiravati River, and it was, uh, the river was huge and flooded with uh, rainwater wa- from the storm. And the crossing, the ford, was uh, usually quite shallow, but it was waist-deep and very strong. And she wasn't uh, strong enough to carry both of her kids across this river. So she took the newborn across and then made a bed of grasses and leaves on the other side um, and then started back to get the the other child, the older child. And um, she didn't like leaving the new baby there, and she kept looking back as she was crossing and and the story says when she got about halfway across, she saw this eagle, hunting eagle, and it swooped down and, and carried the baby off. And she was screaming and, and gesturing to try to frighten it, but it didn't pay any attention to her. But, but the other child, thinking she was calling him to come, went to the bank of the river and got caught by the floodwaters and was swept away and drowned. Right? So this terrible uh, tragedy here. She didn't know what to do. In complete despair, she continued her journey. It gets worse, I'm sorry. She gets near the outskirts of Savati. She meets a man and asks if he knows who knows her parents, wants to find out what's going on. And He said, don't ask me about them. Ask me about anything else. And she said, there's nothing else I care about. And he said, you, were, you saw how the, the storm these past nights has been so terrible. And the family's house collapsed from the storm. It fell in on them. And they were all killed. And you can see the smoke over there from the funeral pyre for the, your father and his wife and your brother. So this was too much, and she lost her mind with grief. And it said that she began wandering around and weeping and wailing, and uh, her clothing became ragged, eventually just fell off. Most of her clothing fell off, and the townspeople were frightened and, and disgusted by her and drove her away often. Um, but she came to where the Buddha was staying outside the town in the Jetavana Grove. And uh, although some of the people wanted to chase her away, the Buddha had the sense she would be able to hear and understand if she came. And so he told them to let her come. And when she drew near, he said, Sister, recover your presence of mind. And um, she recovered her clarity, her sanity, just with these words. And someone, a kindly person, gave her a robe to wear. And uh, she told her story to the Buddha. He listened um, while she recounted this tragic story. And he said to her, Patachara, it is not only now that you have met with disaster and trouble. In your many lives you have shed more tears for the dead than there is water in all the four oceans. And he continued to speak. And uh, she became calm, her grief subsided. And by the end of this, uh, this first um, teaching that he gave, she realized the first stage of awakening. And she decided she wanted to join the nuns community. And eventually she was known um, as foremost in study and especially in the understanding of the uh, Vinya, the, the code uh, of, uh, by which the, the renunciants live.
So her poem is great. It, it recounts some of her struggles in her practice, and it has a beautiful description of uh, the moment of her awakening. When they plow their fields and sow seeds in the earth, when they care for their wives and children, young Brahmins find riches. But I've done everything right and followed the rule of my teacher. I'm not lazy or proud. Why haven't I found peace? Bathing my feet, I watched the bathwater spill down the slope. I concentrated my mind the way you train a good horse. Then I took a lamp and went into my cell checked the bed and I sat down on it. I took a needle and pushed the wick down. When the lamp went out, my mind was freed. I just love this description. Maybe some night we'll be just reaching for the light switch and our minds will become freed. She wasn't in deep meditation. She was watching the water spill, reaching to put out the light. And there's this interesting sequence related here that uh, sometimes we, f- we find, often we hear this described in, in stories of meditation where there's a period of really intense effort and concentration and then um, a kind of relaxation, a letting go. And some, something that catalyzes, like the light going out in this case, some kind of catalyst sparking the breakthrough. And I'll tell one more longer story. This one again is kind of famous story. Uh, a nun uh, practitioner named Kisa Gotami who um, again was in the town of Savati. And she was quite poor. Her name, Kisa, means thin. So, and um, she was, I think, a, possibly a distant relative. Her, her, the Gotami is uh, related to Gotama. And um, she may have been a distant relative of the Buddhas. And when she was uh, of age, she was married to uh, the son of a well-to-do merchant, but she was quite poor. And um, she moved in with the family, but as a young wife, she wasn't um, treated so well, apparently, at first. But she, had a, she gave birth to a son after some time, and, and this really um, helped her status in the family. She was given an honorable place, and, and so she was especially attached to the little boy and, um, because of his relationship to her happiness in the family. But um, sadly, he became ill and died when he was just a little toddler. And it was too much for her, this tragedy, and she refused to accept that her child had died, and she convinced herself that he was just sick, and if she found the right medicine, he could recover. And so she took the dead baby, dead child, it wasn't a baby, a toddler, in her arms, and she went through the town from house to house asking for help, for some medicine for her poor child. And people even when they told her that the baby, that the child had died, she wouldn't accept it and she just went to the next house and the next house and finally someone sent her to see the Buddha. 
and um, he was staying outside in the Jetavana. And she went to him, uh, asking, hoping for medicine, asking if he knew of any kind of medicine that would help. And he said, yes, uh, I do know of a medicine. He said, go to the town, go back to the town, and bring me a, a white mustard seed from any house where no one has died. And so she, she rushed off thinking, oh, I, I can get this, and then this, this, this enlightened sage with his special powers will be able to produce a medicine. And so she went house to house again, as she had before, asking for a mustard seed, which um, was very common. Everyone had one. People had jars of mustard seeds. Um, but when she asked, um, has, had, had anyone died in the house? The answer was always yes. Someone has always uh, died. And she was told, the dead are more numerous than the living. And the truth finally hit home. And she came to, uh, to the, more to, in touch with reality, realized what had happened, realized that death is common to all, comes to all beings. And she carried uh, her son's body to a cemetery ground and buried it there and returned to the Buddha where he asked if she had gotten the mustard seed. And she said, done, venerable sir, is the business of the mustard seed. And she requested to join the nun's community then. And as in all these stories, she became fully enlightened. And her poem is very long. I won't read the whole thing. A lot of it, it seems to be in a dialogue between her and uh, Patachara, who was the last poem that I read. Uh, Patachara was probably her teacher. But there's a couple of stanzas that are, uh, that are kind of key parts of it, so I'll read those. The sage looked at the world and said, with good friends, even a fool can be wise. Keep good company and wisdom grows. Those who keep good company can be freed from suffering. We have to understand suffering, the cause of suffering, its end, and the Eightfold Way. These are the Four Noble Truths. I have practiced the Great Way, straight to the undying. I have come to the Great Peace and looked into the mirror mirror of the Dhamma. The arrow is out. I have put the burden down. What had to be done has been done. Sister Kisa Gotami, with a free mind, has said this. There are a few poems, actually quite a few poems in this collection that um, the women, uh, that, that uh, they're attributed to women who were living as wandering ascetics, which uh, was not, would not have been very common for women, especially at that time. And uh, this poem is by uh, a woman named Mita Kali, who was living as a wandering uh, spiritual seeker and a wandering ascetic when she met the Buddha. And she was fortunate she um, was there when he gave the Satipatthana discourse, the teaching that we are chanting at night and uh, that forms the basis for our meditation instructions. And uh, hearing that, she uh, decided she wanted to become, uh, join the nuns community. Apparently she was kind of difficult and cross and had a reputation of being self-centered before um, this time, uh, but she became known for her energy and diligence in practice, and uh, 
I like to read her poem. It again has a beautiful description of her real, moment of realization. This is Mitakali's poem. Although I left home for no home and wandered full of faith, I was still greedy for possessions and praise. I lost my way, my passions used me, and I forgot the real point of my wandering life. Then as I sat in my little cell, there was only terror. I thought, this is the wrong way, a fever of longing controls me. Life is short, age and sickness gnaw away. I have no time for carelessness before this body breaks. And as I watched the elements of mind and body rise and fall away, I saw them as they really are. I stood up. My mind was completely free. The Buddha's teaching has been done. This Again, this insight into the impermanence of, of mind and body. And again, the moment of awakening, uh, just in the moment of standing up, this mundane kind of activity. This opening into the truth could come at any time. So it's a, a plug for continuity in the practice. You could be reaching for the oatmeal. The tahini, that'll be the one. <laughs> Do you get tahini in the mornings? I think. Yeah. <laughs> I like tahini <laughs> on my oatmeal. <laughs> Let's see, I have to decide which ones to do. Well, I won't tell the story, this story of a nun named Bada Kundalakesa, but I'll just read her poem. But she was another wanderer um, and seemed to have continued to be a wandering ascetic even after her enlightenment. And um, she was, uh, she was you know, quite a practitioner. And apparently she... Um, She's, it's the only place, aside from uh, the Buddha's foster mother, Pajapati, who was the first of the nuns, where the Buddha, the Buddha ordained her just by saying, come. He said, come, Bada, to her, ehi, Bada. This is her poem. I cut my hair and wore the dust, and I wandered in my one robe, finding fault where there was none, and finding no fault where there was. Then I came from my rest one day, and at the vulture peak I saw the pure Buddha with his monks. I bent my knee, paying homage, pressed my palms together. We were face to face. Come, Bada, he said. That was my ordination. I have wandered throughout Anga and Magadha, Vajji, Kasi, Kosala, 55 years with no debt. I have enjoyed the alms of these kingdoms. 
A wise lay follower gained a lot of merit. He gave a robe to Baddha, who is free from all bonds. A couple more. This is a, a poem by a nun named Sukha, not a different Sukha than Sukha with the means happy or happy contentment. It's spelled a little differently, Sukha. means bright, or shining, or lustrous, her name. And uh, she uh, grew up in Rajagaha, now modern-day Rajgir in India, not too far from Bodhgaya. Um, it's where that vulture peak from the last poem is near there. First time I went to the Buddhist holy places, I, I went first to Rajgir and I wanted to, I thought I would walk down to Bodhgaya from there. Um, I was convinced that wouldn't be a good idea because the area is famous for its highwaymen and dacoits and bandits and uh, I was con told I would be lucky to survive such a trip on my own. But I used to get up every morning when it was still dark and I would walk about 45 minutes or an hour out to this vulture peak. And um, there's a little, uh, there's a simple stone foundation, brick and stone foundation, which is said to be the, what's left of where the Buddha had a little hut there. Every morning I would come and I'd, I'd get there in time to watch the sunrise and sit meditating. And uh, there was always a monk there before I got there. <laughs> Maybe he sat there all night, I don't know. It's very, uh, it, was, it felt so timeless to sit there in the early morning. It was so scary to walk out every day. I did it every day, but I was frightened because it was dark and I knew there were banditos around. <laughs> I'd been told about them. It's near the area where, if you've read uh, Ajahn Suchito's story of his pilgrimage in India and he was, he and his companion were, um, had an encounter, a frightening encounter with dacoits in that area. Hmm. The old city walls are still there. So Sukha uh, was uh, born into a well-to-do family there in that town in Rajgir and when she was very young, she, um, the Buddha used to give discourses in a, in a the squirrel sanctuary grove park there. And she heard him uh, speak when she was young and became a lay disciple and uh, later became a nun and uh, practiced very diligently, realized a full awakening rather quickly when she was still young and became a very skilled, very inspiring teacher, apparently very eloquent in her discourses and um, uh, had a large following of uh, disciples. It said that one day she, uh, after coming back from alms round in the town, in the village, um, she began to uh, teach. And uh, apparently she was, her teaching was so beautiful and so eloquent that uh, all the listeners were just enchanted. And apparently there was, there was a tree growing nearby there in the grove that was, the tree was so inspired it uprooted itself and went striding through the town. Um, <laughs> praising her eloquence. <laughs> I don't know if any trees have uprooted themselves during our talks. Um, 
hasn't happened for me yet. <laughs> so this is actually not her poem. This is the tree's poem. <laughs> Maybe it was a tree spirit. <laughs> What has happened to all these people in Rajagaha? They are like drunks. They don't listen to Sukha preaching the Buddha's teaching. But the wise drink her words as travelers drink rain and never tire of their sweetness. Sukha, you are light because of your bright mind. Concentrated, free of desire, you have conquered Mara and his forces. Bear this body, it is your last. So I'd like to end tonight with uh, one last uh, poem. Not exactly a poem, but it's like a poem. Um, This is more modern. This poem is by a Thai practitioner named uh, nun named Mechi Kao, who lived from 1901 to 1991, had a long life. And she was recognized as fully a little closer to our time. And I don't, she didn't write a poem like this as far as I know, but there was a beautiful book written about her life, a biography. And this is a quotation, uh, something that she said um, that's from that, that book. She was a student of Ajahn Mahabua, a famous Thai um, teacher, monk, and uh, I'll just read this to end tonight. Body, mind, and essence are all distinct and separate realities. Absolutely everything is known. Earth, water, fire, and wind. Body, feeling, memory, thought, and consciousness. Sounds, sights, smells, tastes, touches, and emotions, anger, greed, and delusion. Sound familiar? All are known. I know them as they exist in their own natural state, but no matter how much I am exposed to them, I am unable to detect even an instant when they have any power over my heart. In a perfectly still, crystal clear pool of water, we can see everything with clarity. The heart at complete rest is still. When the heart is still, wisdom appears easily, fluently. When wisdom flows, clear understanding follows. The world's impermanent, unsatisfactory, and insubstantial nature is seen in a flash of insight, and we become fed up with our attachment to this mass of suffering and loosen our grip. In that moment of coolness, the fires in our heart abate, while freedom from suffering arises naturally of its own accord. This transformation occurs because the original mind is, by its very nature, absolutely pure and unblemished. Purity is its normal state. We'll just have a a moment of quiet now. Let these words float off.
Well, thank you for your kind attention. And there's time for walking and then the chanting at nine. And I think we'll probably continue with some Satipatthana. Yeah? I think we'll do some more of the Satipatthana Sutta this evening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.